The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Again, a big welcome to everyone, and especially to folks who are walking into the space for the first time. We appreciate that that's not always so easy, and in particular for certain people that feels this place feels like not your place at first. Uh, Common Ground is, we're trying, the leaders here, we're trying to learn how to be a more welcoming space. We appreciate your feedback. And one of the ways that we're learning to be a more welcoming, welcoming space is realizing how just culturally we're not always a welcoming space. So we appreciate that the poignancy of that, I mean, in our own hearts, that it's not, doesn't always feel so welcoming. And uh, so just in terms of the practice today, and um, I'm about to leave on a teaching, period of teaching out of town, both uh, on both coasts for most of the next six weeks. So uh, I'll be finishing up the series of talks today on working with the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes, these beautiful emotions of basic goodness or friendliness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And they really are protection. They're both a, a means, a practice, but it's also they're also seen as an expression of the fruit of practice, like living more and more often from that place of kindness, that place of compassion, equanimity, and joy, and the nimbleness of that, right? Those emotions are, you know, kind of define the space of creativity so that we know how to show up to any space, any situation we might face. And you can just explore that, like, does any moment of your life need an emotion other than equanimity as you more deeply understand what equanimity is and compassion as you more deeply understand that emotion, that attitude and kindness and joy, appreciative joy or gratitude. And they're related, these attitudes, the four divine abodes, they're related to right intention. You know, the Buddha talks about intention or motivation as, in a way, the active side of wisdom. So the more passive side of wisdom is what we would call understanding, like how the mind sees or comprehends what's happening. And then out of that arises some motivation or intention to engage, to participate in the moment, right? And... You know, a lot of the times when we're mindful and we look, we see that our engagement is really flowing out of some kind of greed, trying to make something happen because we want it that way, or some kind of aversion, trying to control, tamp down what we don't like, get rid of. And that's when we're being wholesome, (laughs) relatively speaking, you know. So even what we would call a a normally wholesome human being they're mostly acting out of greed and aversion because we're just not seeing clearly enough. And the more we see clearly, the more intolerable greed and aversion 
seems to us. You know, we're there with our partner, or we're there with our cat, or we're there, this really ordinary moments, and there's a little impatience, but we notice it, and we notice that, oh, this isn't, isn't, this isn't helping anybody. It's not for my benefit, or the cat's benefit, or anybody's benefit, being a little tight, a little impatient. So it, it gets teased out, and we're left. It's sort of interesting to be kind of just see the direction we're going. And maybe we see friends sometimes or wise friends sometimes that um, are in, you know, a, whatever, a nuanced, difficult, whatever sort of situation they're in, but really showing up in this very nimble way where they're just using different expressions of love. But they're handling their life really well. They're really taking care of business. They're not holding back. They're not in some la-la land of love that has no connection with the moment and what needs to be said or done in the moment. So we really want to understand like what is going to replace hatred and greed and impatience and aversion and fear and longing and lust and you know all of the usuals, us- usual motivations is going to be just as dynamic. The only difference is we won't be planting seeds of suffering for ourselves and others. Only good. A lot of times we feel like, well, I'm not so sure I'll be able to function in the world without greed and hatred, without aversion, without fear, in a, in a sort of aversive sense. That's why we need like, so part of the practice, the path of practice, is recognizing greed and aversion and seeing how unhelpful they, those motive forces are for ourselves and others. But the other half is developing some confidence in this mind's, this heart's capacity to be relating with love in all of its different facets. Because otherwise, we're kind of left in this bind where we feel that greed and hate and aversion, whatever, it's not helpful, but we don't, we don't know the way forward. So practice exists both in the negative, and I'm using that in a skillful way, like really seeing what's unskillful and seeing what's skillful. And this is so apparent, and it's really important to understand this because Buddhism gets a little bit of this misunderstanding that it's just about seeing the causes for suffering. But it's about when, you know, in so many of the discourses of the Buddha, he really talks about seeing both the causes for suffering and the causes for happiness, real happiness, not a superficial or temporary happiness, but a resonant happiness, a happiness that's not dependent on the particular circumstances or conditions which are always going to be in motion. So any kind of happiness we have, it's great when we have happiness that's there because of particular circumstances, but we don't depend on it because we know it's there because of particular circumstances and they're going to change. It doesn't mean we don't care about it. It just means we understand what it is. I'm feeling good because I'm at home and for 10 hours I don't have to do anything. you know. And so my relative happiness, my temporary happiness is conditioned because if I weren't here in my bed with my favorite entertainment, my favorite hot drink or cold drink or whatever your favorite beverages and whatever around you, then 
this happiness would evaporate because it's conditioned on the particular circumstances. And that's what I meant when I said that the practice of the different practices of loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity, these practices of the heart, they're both a means, but they're also a fruit. Because the freedom, no, like how to be free no matter the conditions, that's what that looks like. Like you wonder, what does the heart or mind of a Buddha, a awakened person, a wise, saintly person look like or feel like? Well, we get little tastes, and the Buddha was very clear about this, like the easiest way to get a taste of liberation. So I'll I'll go through the three ways you can get a taste of liberation. The easiest or most common is ordinary moment where for whatever the particular supporting causes might be, your heart is established in basic friendliness, generosity, kindness, compassion, but in a really simple but pure way. So their love for its own sake, compassion for its own sake, appreciation, gratitude for its own sake. You're not using it to get something in the moment. You're not kind in order or compassionate in order for something to happen. Now we do bump into that. We don't tend to pay attention to it. So notice how much freedom there is when love is dominating the mind, whatever the particular flavor of love, that basic goodness. Because you'll get a, a taste of what the mind, the heart is, when there's no greed, not being shaped or contracted by greed or fear or aversion or any of the unwholesome qualities. The second, e- relatively easy, it's still much harder than the first, is deeper states of concentration. Because when the mind really withdraws from the outer world, from senses, and it's in sort of the space of the heart, space of the mind itself, then when the mind is in that very quiet place, greed is suppressed for a while, craving, hatred, all the unwholesome qualities of mind are suppressed when there is that deep state of samadhi. So that only lasts for as long as it lasts, and then the knee hurts, or the dog barks, or you get restless, or whatever, you know. And then that taste of freedom disappears. But it, the memory of it lingers. It affects who we are coming out when we notice a moment of real love and the purity of that and the liberation of that, like how unafraid the heart was in those moments, how unafraid the heart was to engage, to show up, to contribute, to hold back, whatever the moment needed. When we're in that place of love, because we're, in a way, we're free of selfishness in those moments. It doesn't mean we're not taking care of ourselves or we don't know how to take care of ourselves. It's just not coming from this fear, this egoic or this uh, selfish place. It's coming from a generous place. So the generosity of love doesn't have boundaries. So I love myself as I love another person. It doesn't have preferences. So we're not neglecting. If you're neglecting yourself, the love isn't pure yet. If it's just for somebody else, but you're allowing yourself to be, you know, what we might call taken advantage of, well, that's not love. That's ignorance. Why? Why isn't that love sensitive 
to the needs of this person just as much as it might be sensitive and responsive to the needs of anybody else. That's the very nature or definition of love is it doesn't see in terms of boundaries. It's, it's this generosity. That's why they use in the tradition, they use that image of upwelling like a spring upwelling, filling the pond, and then it spills over the banks and starts a stream, right? And it's like love, because it's a natural generosity of the heart, it's not looking to own and contain and protect, but it sees its own life just like it sees another life, and it flows there. And of course, we're always going to be close, like when we're in that experience of love, our own life, the needs of this body and this life is always going to be pretty close, as close as anybody else's life, right? So if you're finding yourself regularly not sensing, taking care of your own needs, then you want to take a look at the love that's there and that maybe it's getting framed with some ancient conditioning you picked up you know, from your cultural conditioning forces that somehow taught you to believe, to hold this tight view that you don't count or some version of that. And it could, of course, go the other way that only you count (laughs) and nobody else counts. And that's another thing to look at, like to really look at what that's about. Because the the pleasure, the freedom, freedom of love is when we go from like it being a practice to being love, being kindness, being compassion, being joy, being equanimity, because that it's precisely why it's the easiest way to get a taste of liberation is it removes that fragmenting, uh, removes the boundaries that create a sense of separation or being apart, how the mind tends to divide up the world, who's on the inside, who's on the outside, who's scary or not okay, who's okay and trustworthy. And all of that, subjectively, we experience as being tight, as suffering. And so love liberates us. When it's really strong and pure, we get a taste of the liberation of an awakened being who has uprooted the tendencies to live with boundaries. That's what awakening is all about. Is First, we start noticing there are these tendencies of the mind, to separate, to divide. There was an interesting article, maybe some of you saw, I forget, it was in the New York Times or wherever, but there was some more research on empathy, which we always used to think of as a really powerful, useful, and I think it is, but they're understanding how empathy is very much related to how humans can be tribal and the sense of like who's on the inside and who's on the outside and We get that around race and around politics and around class and around gender and around all kinds of, you know, nationalism, all kinds of, and even clans. And uh, have a lot of, like, part of what empathy is, is like in my inner group, I empathize. Those are the people I empathize with. I see myself in them, right? But I strategically don't empathize with people not in the group. Right? And then that allows me to demonize them. They don't count. They count, these people count, because I see myself in them. And so what love is not that, right? Love is really 
it's really a tuning. It's like we're, we're starting to notice. And this is the practice part we have to get because it's not always a strong force in the mind, in the heart. So we have to learn how to recognize it when it's weak or feeble. I mentioned the other week, you know, like blowing on embers. We have a wood stove at home. And sometimes it's nice not to have restart it. So you, you know, you get the coals up on the surface and you, you give them a lot of air and then you can get a fire going. And it's like part of that work of finding the embers is having some confidence that this heart is capable of being good. And it, it'd be an interesting question, like, is there anybody in the room that doesn't think their heart is capable of good? You can't bring a time to mind when there was that natural expression of love and goodness, just and that had that radiant quality. It was love for its own sake. Because it, it's really important to be able to tap into those memories as a way of disproving the idea no, 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 not now. I'm not capable of being generous or loving or kind or forgiving or compassionate now. Is that really true? Because we don't, the reason why we want to be able uh, to sort of draw on that confidence, it gets more of a strong force the more we call on it and then we're successful. Like we call on the confidence and then we actually do find that seed, that ember, and then through meditative effort, we keep it in mind. So it's still a mindfulness practice in a sense, but it's an exclusive mindfulness practice because we're not noticing what's predominant in the moment. We're trying to keep in mind this thread of inner goodness that we call love. Right? We're keeping it in mind, and, we're keep, and when it starts to get really faint, then we might bring that memory to mind, or like we did in the guided meditation today, will bring that phrase up because sometimes just a word or a phrase, may this heart be safe. Something simple. Now you have to find the right phrase. It just has to be good enough, not the perfect phrase. But just the phrase that when you say it, and it really teaches us something about the mind because when the mind acts on intention, this goes back to that Um, thing I mentioned at the very beginning about the chant we did about karma. So there's something, there's a, when we act with intention, so when I repeat the phrase, may this heart be at ease, or may all beings be at ease. So whatever the phrase might be, very specific to myself, general to all beings, that is a karmic act. That leaves an impression on my heart. Like So to whatever degree I actually connect with the meaning of the words, not perfectly, but just enough, connect so there's some sincerity when I repeat that phrase silently in my mind. May this heart be at ease. May this heart be safe and at ease. May this heart be safe and at ease. And there's some real connection. Then karma, karma means action with intention and karma sets something in motion it's planting a seed so that's the blowing on the embers that's a one way not the only way that's one way to keep love in mind and that's what strengthens it and unfortunately it's true with the opposite if i keep uh, ill will in mind oh that jerk 
they said that to me. You know, how could they? So when I repeat that in my mind, or even more, I set emotion more karma when I tell and I gossip with a friend and I say, you wouldn't believe what that person said to me, right? Because that's a karmic act too. That's shaping, that's forming my future. So by keeping love in mind, doing the hard meditative work, and you can do it during the day, so it's not just during your formal sits, of keeping that meditation anchor or object in mind, love turns out to be one of the most, in any of its flavors, the most potent meditation object. Because it really lends itself for daily life, like as you're doing your day, like how as you're seeing whatever you're seeing and interacting with whomever you're interacting with, how can you keep seeing the intention, the motivation of love or compassion or joy or appreciation or forgiveness or patience or you know any of the flavors of love so that that is the attitude through which you're living your life in this moment and then in this moment and then in this moment. And so we use kindergarten, which is the formal meditation time when we're sitting still in a comfortable way in a quiet room, and then in that relative, it makes it a little bit easier to do meditation. So then keeping, with this meditation, keeping love in mind. Keeping love in mind. And then eventually, love will get to be one of the most predominant things in the moment. Not the knee pain, not the to-do list, but the actual glow, radiance, of that wholesome emotion. If you keep watering it, or... I should stick with my similes, right? Keep blowing on the embers, you know. Eventually, you're going to have a radiant fire there, right? And then you can really relax throwing fuel or bringing the memories up. You can just be the radiance of that goodness, of that love. And you don't need images. You don't need words. You're actually meditating on the feeling tone, on the radiance on the lightness of love itself. It's a subtle object, which is why we use phrases and memories initially to get some momentum. But when you have momentum, it's not that skillful to keep using phrases and memories because they're relatively gross and it's more powerful if you're using the more subtle, actual, unbounded, because really what you're trying to attune to is the unbounded flavor of love. It goes everywhere, effortlessly, equally. It's inclusive. It's embracing. That's its very nature. That's a subtle aspect of the heart or mind. So you have to really be interested in it. And so if when it's stronger and you're still thinking you've got to repeat the phrase, may all beings be at ease, or bring to mind your cat who you love unconditionally, that's actually going to get in the way. So when love is strong, really practice letting go. And then if it gets weak, you can bring whatever crutch, whatever supports you need back into your practice. So it takes a lot of creativity to do love, loving kindness practice in all of its different flavors. And just <clears throat> to kind of keep it, until you get some momentum, I mean, in a perfect world, you'd go on retreat for one, two, three months, with a really wise teacher who knows this practice down, and you would do this exclusively for your 18 hours a day, as long as you were awake, 
whether you're sitting or walking or eating or whatever, and it, you would learn something about the heart's capacity for love. Right? I've done some of these long retreats where I just did this meditation practice in this way for that many weeks. And then, you know, just doing it off and on, on uh, at other times too. But then it's sort of a go-to thing. Then it's actually easy to practice in the rougher moments of life because I have a lot of confidence now that love is there. That doesn't mean I can find it always, but I have confidence, even when I'm not finding it, that it's available. And it's just a matter of persistence. Where are those coals? I don't care how cold they are. They have the nature to glow brightly. And it's just a matter, and the, the primary fuel is, what is the primary fuel for the development of any of the flavors of love? Recognizing it. Having confidence it's there and keeping it in mind. It doesn't need like a different past. Yeah, if only I had been a wiser and kinder person in the past, then I could do this practice. That, what are you planting the seed of when you're thinking that way? I'm no good. You're going to be better in the future of being, I'm no good. Right? Those are not the kinds of seeds we want to plant. We want to plant the seeds at this heart the confidence that this heart is capable of being good. That's why we have to strategically keep that in mind. Keep coming back to it. And when you get in negative spaces, do your pull out any skill you have to release the mind from whatever that negative, negative pattern might be and get back to work. Is this heart capable of good? Well, I'm not 100% sure, but I, I think it might be. Well, what can I bring to mind? I started today in the guided meditation by just relating to the body because not everybody, but a lot of us, have a, a healthy enough relationship to our body to find some love and compassion just in relating to the animal body here. right? I care about this body. I do care about this body. I had a kind of a jaw toothache this morning. Yeah, I was checking it out, got my headlamp on and <laughs> like, what's going on in there? I had popcorn a few days ago. I was thinking, did I you know, kind of screw it up? But it was like, uh, I noticed, I, I like, oh, why me? Oh, I'm going to be traveling for the next six weeks, and the last thing I need is a dental problem. But, you know, it wasn't, when I, I, I felt this impulse to lash out my, at my partner, who was just trying to be, you know, show up and help, and then I realized, oh, wait, this is not helping. Being angry at being sick or having a, you know, a, bodily pro- a body problem, it's not helping anybody. It's certainly not helping me. And I just sort of relaxed. I did what I could do. I probed, I poked, I looked, I gargled with hydrogen peroxide. <laughs> you know, it's like, and I decided I'm just going to pay attention and see if it goes away on its own. <clears throat> and I'm not going to eat popcorn. <laughs> 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 but but the, the real shift was that recognition like I can be kind about this. It's so much, it, it doesn't limit my skill in deciding what I'm going to do about this and being kind, right? If anything, being aversive or being afraid, that tightness limits a creative response if there is one to taking care of whatever this is. Maybe I'll just end with a 
couple poems. This is, uh, <laughs> you know, in this wildness of life, we're really doomed. And by the way, before I, I just make this other point, humor is really central, like as an expression of love. For some of you, it will be your easy way back to love. Just that kind of friendly, oh, here I go again. It's not a harsh, judgmental, it's, it's kind of that creating space for human ignorance, creating space for, it's like a respectful space for the force of habit, of unskillful habit. Oh, yeah, it's, it's our way of, of including, oh, yeah, you're an idiot, <laughs> right? That's speaking to ourselves, And, of course, other people are idiots, too. This is how it is. This belongs here. This isn't some cosmic mistake, you know, that somehow somebody made some tragic mistake and forgot to remove the ignorance or added too much ignorance or something like that. It's like it is the way that it is. So whatever love is, it has to make room for human ignorance and hate and all the injustice. Because try it. Try not including that and you become withered and a kind of, uh, you don't even want to be around yourself after a while. And it feels, it seems to make a lot of sense to use hate to relate to what's difficult to be around. But when we pay it close enough attention, we realize it's not the way. So when we relate to the wildness of life, you know, we, without humor, without kindness, without forgiveness and compassion, without joy, without equanimity and balance, fearlessness, there's just no way to be in the middle of life and to really be a good friend. So this is a poem by, um, I don't know if she goes, uh, Donna or Dana Falls. There's no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt, containing a tornado, dam a stream, and it will create a new channel. Resist, and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow, and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in, the wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and success. When loss rips off the doors of the heart, or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. And the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. And the reason I like that poem is that it really points that the practice of love is more about skillfully teasing out fear and aversion skillfully teasing out any boundary, any contraction from the heart. So more than the attitude of love being a thing, it's actually this absence of a thing, the absence of greed, hate, delusion, the absence of um, you know, being disconnected or in denial. And then it makes a lot of sense. Like when we're skillfully doing whatever we can do to blow on the uh, embers and to really allow this glow of love and to really 
relax back to trust it. We're really appreciating the mind or heart that's free, empty, right, of the um, separating and limiting effects of aversion and fear and greed. And it's just so interesting in that space what a skillful human being we can be. You know, how we can really show up in all the places we need to show up. So we have about eight minutes or so before the children come in. It'd be nice to hear from a few of you your own thoughts. You want to start us off, John? At the back here. And before John speaks, I'll just say, it's really nice. We learn a lot from uh, different voices coming into the room. And uh, we have some longtime practitioners and regulars. But I just want to encourage people that if you feel moved to speak, share from what you've been learning or ask a question, I just encourage you to raise your hand. Yeah, John, please. So um, I'm thinking about your comment and really the longstanding intention of making this a more welcoming place for everyone. And I think that in in conjunction with the practice has... um, has led me to something, uh, uh, a realization, not just an intellectual thought, but that too, that, and I feel uncomfortable saying this, but but everything that I have as a white male is unfair. <laughs> because the system from which I got it is unfair. And so there's no way you can get a just outcome from an unjust system. Now, I used to think, I've always acknowledged the role of luck in my, in my progression through my career and getting to where I've gotten. But I never realized until about a year ago when I started really uh, participating in this program of awareness that you're, you and the board are intentionally creating, that... The reason I had that luck is because women, minorities, uh, anyone who's um, marginalized by the society was also not there in a big group with me for that door. And I realized too, or at least I think, that in a fair system I could have had a lot less. But I think I would have felt a lot happier. Um, now, I don't know what exactly to do with this. I, I'm actually trying to work this through music, which is my what I do. Um, but I just wanted to thank you know, the leadership and really everyone in this room who's participating in this uh, for helping me to see this. And, uh, and I guess that's it. Yeah, thanks, John. So the path, like our responsibility is to be a happy and free and loving human being. It's not about, uh, it's like the freedom is for all of us. So when we sort of understand our complicity in the cycles of suffering, right? It's to, we have our own incentive to get clear about our complicity and to creatively figure out what we're going to do about that and how to engage that. And it just so happens that it takes care of the world. 
you know, in little and maybe at times in big ways. Each of us doing that work that you described. Yeah, thanks, John, for sharing that. Who would like to go next? Yeah, Laura, uh, is it Mary Laurel? Yeah, over here. Uh, over here, uh, third row of chairs. Um, thank you, Mark, for uh, mentioning humor because I think it is so important. And um, one of the things that um, a neighbor said to me a, a while back, and it really, to me, is really funny, and it, when I when I need it, I think of it. But she, she said to me one day, she said, she was kind of frustrated, and she said, you know what, I'm not really in the mood for how I usually do these things today. And so sometimes I think that, you know, I'm in my regular pattern or I'm doing something... And I say, you know what, I'm not really in the mood for how I do this. My, I'm not really in the mood for this. And tr- without being too critical, but yeah. knowing that I'm not being very wise or skillful. So um, I don't know if that's useful for anyone else, but yeah. it's pretty funny to say, I'm not in the mood for myself. <laughs> Who would want to be me today? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 over here. Uh, Thank you, uh, Mark, for the uh, really wonderful meditation and the talk this morning. Um, So, like, for the past several months, I've been on this kick of trying to practice unconditional friendliness. And that includes people who, you know, community members might, for whatever reason, good or bad, might want to kind of, like, distance themselves from. And... um, and I'm just wondering about like when you do this, because people do have their habit patterns as well as me. I have my own ego and habit patterns. But like at what point, like I think it's a more radical, like practicing the Brahma Vaharas is way more radical and unacceptable in this culture than we really like to accept. Like it's okay to be superficial. It's okay to be fake, but it's not okay in certain ways to practice a genuine friendliness because then other people start not liking you because you're nice to people who for whatever reason, you know, everybody goes through frame, fame, disrepute that whole cycle, yeah. but for whatever reason, people don't like. And so I don't know. It, it just, see, I think it's more radical than what we really like. It's not just, it's just radical. So I'm just it putting is. that out there and it's complex. <laughs> so yeah, but, if you but, have any wisdom, you know, well, yeah. And the kids are here, but I'll just say one thing. Like, how would we have loving kindness uh, to a rattlesnake or deer tick that's you know infected with Lyme's disease? Because it makes sense that we'd want to be generous, but we wouldn't want to be close. So that's the same with people who are difficult or people who are harming us, right? We can understand, especially when we do have some safety. We can understand, boy. It would be miserable to be who they are, to have their mind, right? We can have a lot of compassion, and we can really do what needs to be done to keep them from harming other people. So there's nothing in the way of being fierce, engaged, um, and understanding that everyone is deserving of release or peace, right? I mean, I can really, like with some of the politicians that have a hard time with, I actually visualize their own spiritual, emotional healing, right? Why wouldn't we want that for our so-called political enemies, right? It would be to everyone's benefit. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Zinzale. 
And the children are here, so I'll let them in. And we usually chant or rather sing a song together to end the day. And I think it's on page 44. have some announcements, so Lisa's going to do some announcements for us. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.